Welcome to the Inner Christianity Podcast, where we engage ideas, movements, and worldviews from a biblically Christian standpoint. I'm here with Z and Isaac, as always, and I'm Angela. And today we have a very controversial topic, which is the critical race theory. We look forward to making everyone angry at us today. And Isaac wrote that, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, um, critical race theory is a hot topic, and we're really excited to kind of dig in. And why we wanted to talk about it is because back in December, the presidents of six Southern Baptist seminaries caused a stir by releasing a statement that rejected critical race theory, intersectionality, and critical theory. So the statement that got the most press was this. In light of current conversations in the Southern Baptist Convention, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form. And we also declare that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. This statement angered many people outside of Christianity, inside of Christianity, and more so within the SBC. At least a couple of prominent Black pastors broke from the SBC over the statement, as well as some Black students in the seminaries. The statement brought applause, though, to some within Christianity who have been suspicious of the whole social justice rhetoric that is unbiblical according to them. And these Christians were at the forefront of rejecting Resolution 9, which was a controversial resolution that passed at the annual meeting of 2019 at the SBC convention. And some dissenters were so worried that a ministry called the Founders Ministry, they made a documentary criticizing the resolution as well as critical race theory itself. And the video itself was highly controversial. And due to accusations that it unfairly misrepresented some SBC figures, some of the interviewees backed out of the project and few of the founders members resigned. So on both ends, this has been a hot topic and it's definitely needed for discussion, clarification and intelligent critique. So with that, Isaac, would you like to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about? Yeah. So like you said, it's, it's such a touchy subject, you know, and I think a lot of people, as the phrase or the term critical race theory has become more popular, it's started to engender more like emotional reactions. So I'm going to start first kind of start off with what we don't want to do and what we want to do better, because here's kind of how I see the discussion being done on a popular level on social media, even among people who are professors or pastors. Um, there will be what I call the retroactive CRT apologist. Okay. This is the Christian who jumped on the social justice bandwagon when it first came out. They, they heard the rhetoric, sounded cool. And they were like, yeah, you know, I want to be anti-racist. I want to be this. And they, they jumped, so they just jumped on the bandwagon and they were like, you know, typing all this stuff on social media. Um, but then they, did, they had no idea what critical race theory was never heard of it or if they did they didn't know they really had no clue what it really was saying and then later they started hearing critiques like hey did you know there's this thing called critical race theory it might be saying some problematic things are you sure you want to be saying those things and so such such a person had two choices one admit that they jumped on a bandwagon without thinking about it 
and then kind of swallow that kind of embarrassment. Or two, pretend that they were these nuanced CRT apologists all along and that they know what they're talking about and when they really don't. And then so a lot of people, they choose option two, obviously, because of issues of pride. And then we have the other side who I call the Marxist alarmist. So these are Christians who also didn't know what critical race theory was, but they heard some of the rhetoric and they're like, this is weird. I don't like it. But they didn't really know what to say about it. And then someone gave them the magic word. Oh, it's Marxist. And so these are the people now who accuse everyone for as being a Marxist who brings up race at all or brings up anything that might sound like CRT. And they just, oh, you're a Marxist, you're a commie. And then therefore, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. And so we have this kind of uh, these two sides that I think are not being totally intellectually honest. And so I think what's needed is more charitable discussion and more kind of calm discussion, because ironically, you know, you mentioned, Angela, in your introduction, Resolution 9, as well as the SPC's president statement, and they were taken in opposite directions. Like people, a lot of people hated Resolution 9 because they felt like this was a, just an unbiblical, terrible endorsement of critical race theory. And then some people, and then those very same people got angry at the president's statement. Because they're like, oh, that was not nuanced. That was terrible. But if you actually take the time to actually read both of them in full and also listen to what the writers of both statements said about it later, what they were trying to say, they actually weren't trying to say something all that different. Their tone was a little bit different, but they were basically just trying to say there might be some good things about CRT, but we reject it if it's going to operate as like an overall worldview. They both, both statements said it. So both of the statements could have been clearer, but it's kind of funny that they engendered such different reactions when they were not saying something all that different. And so I think that kind of shows that people are not trying to read or interpret one another charitably. And so I think what we need is a clear understanding of CRT, even in, in the short time that we have, and more specific analysis of CRT and how it is either helpful or harmful. So. Like, for example, merely saying that CRT has some truth is actually not that helpful unless we actually talk about what kind of truth that it does teach. And if that truth is um, all that helpful or is it or is CRT even necessary to hold to that truth? Right. Like, for example, Muslims, they, they teach a truth that God exists. Islam, of course, is not necessary to believe that God exists, right? That's kind of a simple example. Um, is it possible or easy to separate critical race theory or critical theory from, in terms of all, maybe all of its problematic standpoints, you know, can we easily separate the good from the bad and then just keep the good? You know, is it that easy? Mm -hmm. and, and of course, on the other side, you know, we have to do more than just scream Marxism you know, without even knowing what makes it Marxist, you know, why is it Marxist? Why is Marxism bad? You know, we have to talk, kind of talk about those things. So I think, you know, hopefully in our discussion, we're going to try to do some of those things, even though acknowledging that we do have some limited time. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, let's kind of jump into what CRT even is so we can start defining things in order to have like a more clear discussion. 
So Z, did you want to describe what CRT was? Sure. So as you look at the critical race theory, I think a lot of what we're looking at has to be more historical. So it's not one particular thing, but it started back in the 70s, 80s, and people wanted to see how they could repackage the fight against racism. And so it was technically a legal theory where some of these lawyers, they saw the law as ideological, power-driven, and in a way that would overwhelm or overbear minorities or certain races. And so now it's beyond that. It also covers different disciplines such as education, literature, religion, etc. So a lot of what they do is a counter storytelling. They make racism a permanent fixture. They see a lot of property as whiteness or involved with the, the, the white race, etc. And there's interest conversion and, and a huge critique of liberalism. So when you kind of see it, it it kind of brings to mind a sense of everything is a certain racist fault. And because of that, it's easy to pin everything back on them. And it doesn't really give much chance for dialogue because once you blame someone, it's difficult to reassign the blame because you don't want the blame to come back on yourself. So I think it lacks a lot of accountability and it also lacks a lot of personal responsibility because it's easy to name shame or point the finger. It's not very easy to critically think through something and try to better understand how it's not just one race's fault, but how we can all work together. So that's kind of how I think CRT can be defined. One helpful book for an introduction into critical race theory, and this is written by critical race theorists themselves. I think in the field, it's considered kind of standard for, I think, a couple decades at least. It's called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk. And in that book, they list five common features. Because critical race theory is a kind of wide branching discipline, but they list five common features um, that they think are shared among pretty much all critical race theorists. And they call themselves crits, by the way. They'll say like racism is ordinary, not aberrational. So racism is just kind of a normal part of Western life, at least. They talk about something called interest convergence or material determinism. So they think that not only are people's behave behaviors largely determined by their material situation, they think that for the people in power to kind of give up that power, they only do it on their own terms, right? They only do it if it benefits them. And so that, that's what they kind of think about that power dynamic. The people in power are only gonna give it up or only gonna change if it benefits them. Um, that's how people operate. Um, race is a social construct, that's number three, that does not correspond to any biological reality. Four, they believe in intersectionality and anti-essentialism. So no person, has a single unitary identity, but overlapping and potentially conflicting ones, um, particularly ones that are part of my, like a marginalized group. So if you have multiple kind of marginalized identities, like if you're a single black mother, 
for example, like those, all of those would intersect in some way and um, give you a very unique experience that other people aren't, aren't going to know. And kind of related to that, the fifth one is voice of color thesis, meaning that oppressed voices have a unique access to truth, if not even a superior one to the oppressor's voice. Okay, so at, at the very least, it's a unique access to truth. And so influential popularizers, so I just gave you a couple of scholars, but in terms of maybe more popular people that are, I would argue are more influential in the culture, it'll be like authors like Robin D'Angelo, she wrote White Fragility, which I read, maybe not my most enjoyable read, but I read the thing. Um, you read the whole thing? I did. Oh my gosh. Ibram Kendi, I, I actually have been working through his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, okay? And so we see its influence among not just the culture, but even among many Christians. So in terms of Christian influence, I've seen it in seminary, like seminary professors who admit that they are white supremacists by virtue of being white or who tell other white people not to apply for teaching jobs to make room for minorities that was interesting these are these are these are professors at conservative seminaries um campus ministries i see it you know kind of online blm supporters and then you know of course a plethora of other things that we see on social media so that's kind of a very brief rundown of these common features of critical race theory and you know Z talked about its genesis and in, in the 70s in terms of it being a legal theory do you think there's anything more we should try to cover about crt at least in terms of a summary well i think we did it was very quick so i i, I know it could yeah it's very quick very overwhelming <laughs> but i guess maybe when we evaluate it and kind of talk about the different tenets of it Mm -hmm. it can make kind of more sense and more um, practical to what these theories yeah. are even look like. One thing that they that's shared, I, I would argue, among critical race theorists, and they're not they're not shy about saying it, is they're not usually big fans of what we call classical liberalism. Um, this idea that so classical liberalism is the tradition of John Locke and those kind of people who really helped shape Western democracy, particularly American constitutionalism, they're not a big fan of that because they view like even so. So the classical, more liberal position on the American project and its failures is like, hey, American America is, was built on good ideals and America has failed those ideals a lot. But as time goes on, we try to reach out towards those ideals like equality, right? And um, all men being created equal, that kind of thing. Critical race theorists tend to look at that as like, no, it's not that the ideals are good and then we're just failing them. It's like the very ideals of liberalism are built on a lie. Like all the promises that li like classical liberalism tries to say about justice and equality, all of it's bunk. It's a lie of like basically the white man. And so what's needed is at the very least a retrieval or a very strong reformation of liberalism, or for some, it's a complete rejection. Like you just need classical liberalism has to go bye-bye, you know? And so that's kind of shared among them. 
and and the, the critical race theorists, the scholars, they're they're pretty pretty frank about being activist, you know. So so it has it's a, even a somewhat different approach to scholarship than what we think, where we think like, hey, scholars just try to be as objective as possible. We do research and all that kind of. No, they're they're straight up like, no, we're activists and we're trying to reshape society. So I think I think it's fair to point out that this is critical race theory. So. I guess then, you know, we can start evaluating it in the sense of like, okay, there are both extremes of like, oh, this is a, like, this is what we need. This is what America needs to change uh, for the better. And then you have the other extreme of like, oh, like Marxism, Marxism, you know? And so I guess like, what are some good things for critical race theory, if there are any, and then some negative things. And I guess we can start with like the good things, like things that are true and things that we can use from CRT. Yeah, I think, and, and for us in this podcast, you know, we don't want to be too political. So I'm somewhat less interested in this podcast talk to talk about their critiques on liberalism. You know, our purpose here is not to like defend, you know, America, you know, it's like whatever. Um, <laughs> so, we, you know, we're trying to come at this like, okay, biblically, like, mm-hmm. what would we be okay with and what would we not be okay with so right. so one of their most uncontroversial claims least objectionable claims is that race is primarily a social construct often used to differentiate people arbitrarily and to oppress those people now i don't go all the way with them when they say race has absolutely no correspondence with biological reality that's kind of hard to swallow in the sense that you know, we can clearly differentiate people often by the color of their skin. We can see it. You know, we can, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, if you have two Asian parents, they're going to pop out an Asian baby. It's kind of a guarantee, you know, if they get pregnant, like my wife mm-hmm. is pregnant. She's Chinese. I'm Korean. I'm pretty sure that Asian is going to be half Chinese, half <laughs> Korean. That's kind of how it works. But mm-hmm. we do agree that that kind of difference, biological difference, is very superficial. And then so to build an entire like identity around it um, that racists have done in the past, which is to, to really justify treating different groups of people in um, very disparate ways is mm-hmm. a social construct and often used by people to oppress. So that's one that I think a lot of people don't really have a problem with. I think the way that they storytell is very powerful. And as you control a narrative or describe a narrative, you're able to mobilize. So I think that's the second thing. So their storytelling mobilizes and inspires people. So typical to a, t- a type of symphony, you have to start it with a note. And it was the perfect storm. BLM took off. People were at home stuck in because of COVID. And because of that, it just presented an opportunity where there were so many eyes looking at one thing. And as it kind of took off, you started to see the effects of the mobilization, the grassroots, et cetera, and people really bought in. But similar to how these movement works, they don't always plan out how the symphony should end. They just want to start something. And so I think that creates a lot of issues because the planning starts to reveal the intent of the leaders. And Isaac brought up an article about how one of the leaders is just profiting out the wazoo, buying up mansions. <laughs> like, whoa, I thought you were a 
Marxist, like trained Marxists, what, what happened to the wealth distribution? I think Isaac called it a race hustle. So it's kind of sad because you want to believe in something and you don't want to just be like, oh, just because she did this, the whole movement's trash now. But, but you do see how, because there's not a lot of planning, like there's a lot of mobilization, but there's not a lot of sustainability. And that's what kind of creates this gap there. Sure. And, and maybe, you know, we can save some of our critiques till later. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was yeah, kind of a... Yeah, these are things are the yeah. right things. We're yeah, right. That, was an, that was an interesting episode. Um, I think she might have stepped down. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I she, she. I think she did. Yeah, she was like, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm out. Um, yeah, so I mean, given the idea that like race is primarily a social construct that people use to oppress, you know, institutions themselves can be flawed and unjust right and you know we've seen this definitely in the past a lot of unjust verdicts uh, unjust laws there's something called redlining where like banks and stuff would refuse loans to kind of quote unquote high financial risk candidates but often you know based upon their race you know we kind of saw that clearly so it does happen mm -hmm. and i also think one of the things that I think is right, at least on some level, is that a diversity of voices can be helpful in ascertaining what is true and cover blind spots of the majority, or at least of the ones who um, talk the most, right? So things like, you know, to, to use like a different example, other than race, like sometimes it's helpful to have a woman, woman's opinion, if you just have a bunch of dudes in a room, and a woman can maybe have a different perspective that helps and vice versa if you have a bunch of women in the room <laughs> you know like i think sometimes a yeah. man coming a man coming in can be like a good <laughs> yeah you being yeah saying is both i was saying it works both ways angela it's not yeah just <laughs> i want to say something but i'm gonna keep it quiet because i know I got yeah some... you should good good oh use that gosh. wisdom <laughs> keep quiet yeah and uh, hegemonic power is real, like, to, so cr critical race theorists, they're really big on hegemony, this idea that kind of there's this, you know, one kind of power over like a society. And that can be real. And oppression can be real, you know, and oppression stinks, you know, no one is pro oppression, usually. And um, so I think all of these things are correct. We can find examples in the Bible about oppression. Like we saw Israel be oppressed many times, um, probably saw Israel oppress other people sometimes too. And we saw Israelites maybe oppress each other. So that stuff happens. And so I think all of these things are relatively unobjectionable. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And we hope that people realize we're not here to just like bag on CRT like we do recognize that there is good and that there are some things that CRT does get right but on the other hand we also recognize that there are things that Christians specifically should object to within CRT because it does uh, grab certain theories or truths that aren't necessarily in the Bible and so my question then is like what are those things that we should be careful of or things that Christians specifically should object to with CRT? Well, I'll first start off with the idea of oppression. So like I just said, of course, oppression exists. Oppression is bad. When we see it, we should try to work to stop it, especially when it's quote unquote oppression based upon like superficial um, traits that shouldn't matter. But I think 
they not only define oppression in a way that we probably wouldn't agree with, they have, a, I think, an unbiblical reductive view of society. So you're either on the oppressed side or the oppressor side. There's like no in between. And Ibram, Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, he, he kind of substitutes those terms with racist and anti-racist. You're either a racist, meaning that you are not only someone who might say and believe racist things, but you are complicit in what he thinks are racist policies that um, create inequities between groups. So does that mean then he kind of changes the definition of racism? Yeah, he does. And so he does that pretty clearly in his book. He's like, I, I, and I actually appreciate that he was clear on it. Not everyone is. So he's very <laughs> clear on when he wrote it. He's like, here's how I define racism and anti-racism. So in any case, if you don't, so if, so not only like believing and saying certain things, but being complicit, which could even mean just being passive, right? Regarding mm -hmm. racist policies, you're a racist and you're an anti-racist if you're actively against those things. And there's no in between for him. You're a racist or anti-racist, period. Yeah. And I think that's not a really good view of society. I think it's very reductive and it's not reductive in a way that's either obvious or biblical. So as a philosopher, for example, one obvious way you can reduce people is like A or not A, like either people are blonde or they're not blonde. That covers everyone on the planet, right? <laughs> you know, that's easy. Or um, you're, or a biblical one would be like believers or unbelievers, right? Or um, the goats and the sheep that Jesus talks about. That's a way you could reduce society. But generally speaking, being this reductive is usually missing a lot of the nuances of human life, right? And there's nothing in the Bible that separate that that supports this idea that you're either the oppressors and then therefore like quote unquote the bad guy or the oppressed, even if you didn't do anything. And that's kind of the interesting thing. Like even if you you personally did, didn't, didn't do anything, or maybe even your group didn't do anything, depending upon whether or not you agree with one side or another, or you're, or they're, they're expecting certain actions from you, they can like say you're oppressed or the oppressors. And so I think a lot of Asian Americans, for example, have experienced this when they kind of sometimes sat on the sidelines watching some of the racial rhetoric that's kind of flung back and forth between white and black people. And then sometimes those either white or black people turn to Asians and saying, well, if you don't say this, you don't do this, you're either a racist or an anti-racist, right? You have to choose, like you have to do this. And it's like, wait a second, like what, why, why did I get dragged into this? Like when we've, you know, experienced our own oppression as Asians and we're just, we're just trying to understand, you know, everyone's arguments. And so it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, I think another thing along the lines of like Ibram Kendi's book is, yeah, it's not enough just to be like passive or neutral even. Like, right. and it's weird because it almost seems like a religion to me <laughs> because there were, I had some friends that read the book and they like reached out to me and they, you know, would start these race conversations and they would keep count of how many protests you've been to and kind of what, are you doing to stop racism? 
you know, like almost evangelizing <laughs> they, in a sense, they, you know, they kept counts. So the, yeah, I mean, that was the minimum number that was good. <laughs> exactly. And that's the problem is that there isn't really a solidified aim or goal. It's just a continual focus to be anti-racist, whatever that even means, you know, and that's why I'm like, I think I have problems with that because it's, it's just, there's no aim, there's no goal. It's just kind of weird, this vague thing of being anti-racist and feeling good about doing certain things to fight racism, you know? Yeah. And just like equalizing racism to power and uh, being like simplistic in that definition and that category of power. And I don't know, it's just like, it's confusing, honestly. And it, feels well, like it's and, and it's very marxist and this is what makes it marxist so um uh -huh. a lot of christian like like we kind of poked a little fun at, at the beginning like there are some conservative christians who just scream marxist and that's all they do yeah but if you really want to kind of break down what makes it some uh, you know part of the intellectual tradition of marxism is like okay original marxism og marxism is Marx kind of viewed the oppressed and the oppressor between like the capitalist and the proletariat, right? The worker. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of predicted this like, okay, the, the worker is going to have a violent revolution to overthrow his oppressors and take the means of production and what, and so on and so forth. And as Marxism kind of matured, or at least like it realized that um, Marx's predictions didn't come about like, when World War One happened and World War Two happened, they're like, or particularly World War One, they're like, well, the 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 workers just fought each other, you know, and all the same. So they're like, something's wrong. And so they actually identified the major obstacle for the fruition of the ideals was Western, a kind of Western ideology, Western democratic ideology. And so they, so then they kind of changed what they thought who they thought were the oppressed and the oppressors based upon that. So who are the oppressors now? Who are the oppressed? Now they've kind of taken that category of oppressed to not only involve certain ethnic minorities, but even things like, you know, sexual minorities that they call like LGBTQ people. So that's what makes it Marxist, right? Um, this is, this is why we call it Marxist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing on some research back in the day, I didn't do a lot on Marxism, but I did do some on communism. And so they took it to a further extreme and wanted a constant struggle. And kind of like how Isaac mentioned, Western thought ideology was the enemy. So it was a ghost enemy that the, the government could constantly attack because Western, Western thought was very much alive in the United States. So by default, we became the enemy. The sad thing is when you have a struggle that doesn't end and it's shame-based, you end up shaming everyone. So the, the communist leadership was very suspicious of one another. There's a lot of corruption. The inner four started suspecting each other and the breakup started to happen. So the, the, the premise of attacking someone, it's not wrong per se. Like if you feel like you need to defend yourself, then, then okay, I can understand that philosophy. But to point at an entire group and say, they're the reason why we're struggling when we're not even in your hemisphere, like we're not even in your world, it's, it's kind of a strange thought. And, but when you make it bigger than you, people buy into it, right? 
So that kind of leads into two thoughts for me from a more biblical perspective. When you see how some of the prophets of God were isolated or burdened with the message they had to preach, God very rarely came up to them and was like, oh, here's a hug. You know, you feeling down? I'm, I'm going to give you a big hug. Are you okay? How are you feeling? He was like, go back out there and do X, Y, and Z. He, he basically recommissioned him, especially with Elijah. He was crying. He was the only one left. God's like, uh-uh, there's about 7,000 that haven't bowed to Baal. And then the whole thought process of if one group's hurting, we have to focus on over the rest. It's also very anti-biblical because when you think about it, God wants us to not to lose our personal identity, but in him, we have no distinctions. And I think that's an amazing thing because of the class structure and because of different things in the world, it, it separates people, right? But in Christ, we're able to meet people from all walks of life and worship together. And so if we are to go against that, let's say in Galatians 3, 28 and other passages in the Bible, then we're essentially breaking what God wants to unify. We're essentially saying that even though you may be a Christian and you're white, you have to repent. But it's like, wait a second, we all have the Holy Spirit within us. We're all repenting. Why is one race more responsible or more X, Y, Z over something else? And it's like we've been saying, it's just so easy to blame an, an entire entity and, and make it seem like the enemy. And if you don't try to process the sum total of what something is good or bad, then it becomes a dangerous kind of situation. Yeah, that might lead us to another objection we might have, which is and say CRT has an unbiblical view of identity. And as he was saying, like, hey, if you're a Christian, primarily you are in Christ. And that's what he, Paul says in Galatians 3. Like, it's not that those distinctions Paul talks about, like you neither man nor woman, slave nor free, um, Greek nor Hebrew. He's not saying those distinctions like disappear overnight or something, um, but that they don't matter compared to the unity that Christians should have in Christ. And what I see in CRT is the, which is kind of ironic because they, on not only on the one side, they seem to decry the, you know, race as a social construct and then use as, as a way to identify people and then oppress them. But then they are kind of almost like lean into it. It's like they now elevating this seemingly quote unquote marginalized aspect of people to as like the high point of their identity. And that's what that's the whole point of intersectionality too. That's why some people derogatorily sometimes call it like the oppression Olympics, because like people even competing with one another, like who is more oppressed? You know, I I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. You know, oh well, okay, I'm this and this and this. You know, and like who's more oppressed, and therefore who should have you know higher priority, right? And that's just not a good way to view individuals. I think particularly if those individuals are Christian, because it is Christ who identifies us and we can acknowledge certain differences that we have, but then also say like those differences are so secondary to our primary identity in Christ. So are we saying then, just to kind of push back, like, we're saying, oh, like our identity is in Christ and that our worth and value is not necessarily in power or these things, but like, what do we then do with those things? Like if there is injustice or if a whole people group is being oppressed, 
because that is the claim that our black brothers and sisters, like they're being oppressed specifically by the system and the institutions. And you see that through um, like the poverty level, through, I don't know, different things. Like how would you guys then kind of respond to that? I think from a more political perspective or even like socioeconomic one, if you were to look at different nations and let's say African nations, like you could say that they suppress other people as well, right? So regardless of race, like if race wasn't a factor, the oppression mm-hmm. would be there. So if, if you make that clear and then you move into, okay, for us, are the African-Americans the only ones being oppressed? But of course, because it doesn't fit the narrative, that's not going to be something that's popular to look at or analyze. And I think one thing that I think about in terms of a biblical perspective, it's not that you have to stay silent or you can't say anything, but the important aspect is how something that really stands out to me is Exodus 14, 14, where it says, you know, remain silent as the Lord fights for you. And that's like a very strange phenomenon to think about. And even when Christ was accused and put to death, he, he really didn't say much to defend himself. And, and it's right. this weird sense of we we want there to be justice so swiftly and quickly that sometimes we don't recognize that God's plan and timing is not how we process. And a lot of times, if God were to punish or were to use judgment, he uses it in a way to bring people back to him. So I think for me, one way of looking at justice is are we reuniting people or bringing them back into restoration with God? Or are we just pushing certain ideologies to make us feel better. I think that's a huge distinction. Are we trying to feel better or are we trying to glorify God? Because if it's the latter, you know, glorifying God, then okay, I'm all on board for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think people would then argue it is to glorify God because God is a God of justice. And we see our black brothers and sisters being oppressed in certain ways or like police brutality specifically to black people more so than other races. And yeah, I, I do agree that like to some degree, like we are to remain silent and to in the midst of oppression because that's what Christ did. But at the same time, like there are other passages people can point to and say, see, like God wants us to fight for injustice too. So I would say like, what's the balance? I would say the equivocation is again how people define things. And I think if people do a careful reading of the minor prophets, especially, especially with um Habakkuk, where the problem of evil arises quite a bit, God uses certain nation groups to punish Israel, and Habakkuk does not understand why. But in the end, he realizes that because God is in control, it's not so much the method or means that we see presently, but the fact that at the end, God will glorify himself. And so I think for me, the argument, again, you're not trying to shut people down or make them feel dumb or, or keep appealing to different types of experts or, or research. But the point is you want people to have a baseline. And if we can't dialogue, right, and, and make those steps, I think it's hard. So I think if I were to try to talk to someone, I, I want to make sure that we're, we're able to communicate clearly these things, but at the same time, not let our emotions kind of control where the argument goes. But I agree, like, it's not to say like, you know, stay quiet, sit down, stay humble kind of thing is at, at some point there, there does have to be a stand and we can stand for our black brothers and sisters who are being unjustly like punished or etc. But I think the the story we tell has to be always centered on Christ, instead of a movement or instead of a race, etc. Yeah. And w- what I would say to like, what we should do is 
So first I'm going to start with what I think is wrong with how CRT people try to address these questions. Um, and I'll use Ibram Kendi. So Kendi has said that the only remedy for racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. And he's also moves on to say like, the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. Now, kind of understand what he's saying here. So he's straight up saying like, because of injustices that were against my people, real or perceived in the past, I am now going to turn that around on who I think are the oppressors. And that's justice to him. That is not a biblical view of justice. All you're doing is creating a cycle. All you're doing is punishing people who didn't do anything wrong. And you're doing it out of sense of grievance, bitterness, and anger. None of that is biblical. Hmm. In fact, you know, I'm, I have Proverbs 24 in front of me right now. It says in verse 29, do not say, I shall do the same to him, like this a neighbor, as he has done to me, I will repay the person according to his work. And so nowhere in the Bible does that, is that a view of justice. And so what I kind of view is like, we have to kind of take a long view on a lot of this stuff. And it's like, when you see racial prejudice and when you see kind of, and at first you gotta do better than just outcome analysis. You have to actually look at cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And when you see some of these things, you have to just try, you try to remove as many obstacles as you can that are unfair and unjust so that people are treated fairly. And you can, and then of course there, there are more immediate things you can do, like give money to like certain, um, I did this once where I, I gave money to a certain uh, legal kind of charity where they try to represent like underrepresented minorities, right? Who are too poor to like afford good legal representation. So you can do stuff like that. But in terms of like long-term, like you want to have more of a, you're, you're actually trying to strive more to a sense of equality rather than I'm going to get back at you. So an example I often use is what happened to like, this is a very kind of specific example, but I think it helps is what happened to Jeremy Lin. So if you know Jeremy Lin's story in basketball, it's very clear that he was discriminated against because of his race. It's completely obvious. He was a great basketball, high school basketball player. He got zero, zero division one offers. And then he was a great player at Harvard because he, he was forced to go to Harvard because of that. He didn't get drafted at all. So he didn't get, so it, it, it's not that he was even a second round pick. He was not drafted at all, you know, and he was good enough, I would say, to be what we call a lottery pick in the NBA. And then it took him forever to even get a fair shot in the NBA. And then finally, when he was at the cusp of getting kicked out of the league, he finally got his big break and he, the whole insanity thing happened and finally he got to have his career. It's very obvious he was discriminated against as an Asian. Some people even admitted it, who were like scouts back then, they, they admitted it. So it's like, okay, so what do we do? He was clearly treated unjustly because he's Asian. What do we do about that? And it's like, well, the question, well, the, well, the solution is like, okay, the next time we see Asian players try like don't have that kind of stupid mentality that oh this guy my, my eyes are deceiving me this guy he seems good but he can't be that good because he's asian right um 
And so, and then you let the chips fall where they may based upon merit. The solution is not, and I would say this as an Asian person, the solution is not, okay, since this happened to Jeremy Lin and other Asian players, the solution is now to have like a quota of how many, like how many um, NBA teams need to have at least one or two Asian players, right? Or like, I'm a big UC football fan. It would actually tick me off if we put a Korean quarterback in there just because, like, hey, we, we, we're wanting to be diverse, you know, and we're sorry about all the kind of athletic discrimination against Asians. So we're going to put a Korean quarterback in there. I'll be like, he better be dang good. I'm going to be ticked off. You know, I don't want my team to stink. And so and so that's the idea. Like you, you want to strive more to the ideals of true impartial justice and, and what they're what they're advocating for is frankly partial justice just going the opposite direction and they think that's a solution when it's really not right so i'm hearing that there's an unbiblical definition of justice which equals unbiblical actions to remedy what the problems are in that. right right okay yeah and I think another problem is like, not only do they have an unbiblical view of justice and like what the answer to, or the solution is to the problems, it's just in general, like their view of the problems that we are talking about is imbalanced too. Like they simplify it to just power. And a lot of it's based on narratives, right? Of people's stories mm -hmm. and how their stories are almost sometimes above fact and what actually happened. And I see that a lot with, um, I guess CRT people or situations with BLM and things like that. Yeah, like yeah. the, the create. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is not a biblical epistemology where narrative trumps reason and revelation and facts. Um, probably one kind of crazy, and it, there's actually many situations like this, but just one mm -hmm. that comes to the top of my head was this one African American girl at a I think a small private college, she accused like a janitor of being racist towards her. And I don't think it was, it was even a white janitor. I think it might've been like Hispanic. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And that janitor, I think initially got fired or at least put on leave. And as they investigated though, like literally zero evidence came up that this janitor did anything wrong. Like hmm. nothing corroborated this girl's story. She stuck to her guns. This was her narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I could even detect in the media like a reluctance to criticize her. It was like, well, you know, yeah, kind of stunk what happened to this janitor, but that's her narrative, right? <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. like, no, she was wrong. She lied. Like, just say it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. She, she uh -huh. lied. I don't care if it's her narrative. Her narrative is false. And and that's and and that kind of epistemology, highly subjective, highly emotion based, is completely unbiblical and highly damaging. I think. Mm -hmm. And I saw a YouTube video. It was like a democratic like YouTube video, and like everyone was like LGBTQ AI plus like everyone. And so when they were kind of sharing their experiences or they were debating everyone referred to their own narrative their own story and it was just like going nowhere because they were basically pointing to how they were the most oppressed therefore they're the most right so i really saw crt come into play into like just a conversation like that 
And yeah, I think, okay. yeah, that points to kind of the problems we're talking about. It's like, okay, so at what point does reason come in? Well, what's interesting is, depending on how you view Jordan Peterson, he said something like, the LGBT acronym is going to continue to grow because they're going to find more people who are oppressed, more people that feel marginalized. And the thing is, ironically, at some point, that minority or marginalized group becomes the majority because everyone has found a new categorization or new letter to the acronym to add. And so he was saying it's not sustainable because, like you were saying, everyone ends up basically doing an inverted popularity contest. Like, oh, I'm more popular than you because I've suffered more than you. So it's kind of this, this strange thing that if you want something to grow and sustain, it has to have more substance than just a single story. Now, again, we're not we're not saying a story is not important because when we share the gospel, we share our testimonies, but it leads to something greater. So a narrative cannot be something that's the, the final step or final destination, kind of in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you even though we're not going to talk about kind of LGBT issue here so much, I'm glad y'all brought that up because in terms of as Christians are evaluating CRT, um, one of the things Angela brought up when you said like, it kind of sounds like a religion, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and I want to be clear because I don't want people like trying to accuse us of misrepresenting CRT scholars. Like I haven't really run into C- any CRT scholars who would, of course, claim CRT as their worldview. They wouldn't, or religion, like they wouldn't say it that way, mm-hmm. but it sure, it seems to operate that way a lot. Right. When, you, when I, t- when I interact with them or read them. And so with that in mind, a lot of biblical Christians are gonna have to wrestle with the fact that for them, because it operates at least as part of a worldview and part of this larger structure of critical theory. So there's critical race theory, which is a subset of critical theory. Uh, the vast majority of critical race theorists, particularly if they're secular, they think it's just part of it to also bring alongside of them as part of the oppressed LGBTQ people. They're oppressed. They're marginalized, they're wronged. And guess who's the bad guy in that? What's often the church, right? Right. And so, and so for them, that, that, that goes hand in hand. And so for biblical Christians who know what the Bible says about like the gay lifestyle, they're gonna have to wrestle with the idea like, can I really separate these things I want, these like narrow things I want to say about race with this larger project that CRT scholars themselves think is part of what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's why you even see in BLM's like state mission statement, it's right. not just for black lives, but it's beyond that. It's for the LGBTQ because they're also oppressed and they're also the minority. And so you see, like Isaac was saying, this connection that can't be separated from just race. It goes to sexuality, to uh, your gender. And so definitely you see that oppression mindset beyond just race which is really interesting how that's being expanded i mean it's being ever expanded i mean recently i saw an interesting video where this this girl was claiming that there's such a thing as fat phobia so and she was trying to guilt i mean it Wait, I, I, fat I, look, phobia I as in yeah so like, i like i don't want to like 
I want to be very clear, you know, for Christians, your identity is in Christ. It's not in how you look. Okay. Making that very clear right now or how much you weigh, you know, weight differs between different body types. But she was trying to go so far as to say, you are obligated to like find me attractive. You know, if you don't, you're a fat phobic. So it's not, so you can't, so it's not the same thing as like, Hey, I would prefer like be attracted to a girl who's athletic or who's likes the same movies as me. It's like, no, you can't have that preference. How dare you? And it's like, wait a second, what's happening here? And it's because for her, she's like, people who are obese are marginalized and therefore we deserve X, Y, and Z. And so yeah, it's kind of an ever expanding kind of category as people are trying to find what makes them oppressed. Interesting. Yeah, like even age. Yes. Like pedophilia is growing in support <laughs> because of this kind of mindset. And so my, yeah, my question then is like, when does it ever stop? Like to what point is oppression oppression? Well, well it doesn't. <laughs> I don't think so. And Z kind of brought up this point too. I think this idea that, and this is why it's not so black and white in terms of like oppressed oppressor, right? One of the definitions that some people try to throw out there for racism is racism is prejudice plus political power to produce change. And then they say black people don't have the political power to produce change, so therefore they can't be racist. They can be prejudiced, but they can't be racist. Right. Now, not only is that silly in terms of a moral evaluation, because it's like, well, even if we grant that definition, you're still you're still admitting that black people can be prejudiced and that's not morally better. <laughs> you know, like that's still like what's what you're in control of. But secondly, the idea that minorities don't have any political power to produce change is straight up false. You know, we have plenty of minorities in different legislative bodies throughout the entire country. We had a black president recently, like, mm -hmm. but it's it's this it's like this kind of bait and switch where you're trying to gain power and gain the advantages of the status of the mm -hmm. oppressed without wanting to actually be oppressed, right? Like, even if you didn't actually go through a whole lot, you know, you, you see these societal advantages now of being quote unquote oppressed. So you're gonna claim some of those identities and that, that experience for yourself. And then mm -hmm. what, do you, and what you end up getting are people you know, like um, certain politicians who might claim different race for themselves or, you know, claim certain status for themselves. And they mm -hmm. have power, they're politicians, but what do right. they want to be? They want to be st still viewed as oppressed because it has advantages. So it's, it's going to be a never ending game of coming up with oppressions. So uh, is all power bad for CRT people? Like um, any amount of power? It doesn't seem so. Uh, um, uh -huh. So it's just. No, it like well, I say that kind of facetiously because they seem to like power a lot, <laughs> but they 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 definitely tend to view power as this thing that yeah, it's all it, it is. I think almost inherently negative, at least how they describe it. If they if they attach it to who the groups that they want to attach it to and call them the oppressors, then power is bad, right? Mm. So it's very wishy washy. Like I feel like it's ever-changing depending on the group or who they're in favor of yeah i would say so i think there's a lot of double standards and i mm -hmm. think there there is a lot of um just outcome analysis but only when it 
the outcome that they don't like. Hmm. So women are so, oppressed because uh -huh. women like for so for a feminist theology, fem, like our feminist theory, it'll be like women are oppressed because there are not enough women who are in X, right? So a look at a particular outcome, let's say, for example, you know, McDonald's managers, I, I just making that up right now. And therefore, you know, McDonald's is, they're oppressing women because they're not hiring enough female managers. But then if it's another instance where there's actually more women in a field or doing better than men, that's just conveniently ignored, right? He's like, wait a second, I thought you didn't like disparate outcomes but they only care if it's a certain like group that they care about. And you're saying CRT does like similar in terms of outcome. Yes, when okay. it comes to race, yeah. So is oppression, like what is a biblical view of oppression? And like, where does sin come into play with CRT and like the, the you know, kind of how those two work together? Because I think that's an important point too. So I think for me, I don't see the issue of racism as the end all sin, because I see it being a subset of sin. So I, I kind of see it the other way around. But I think CRT or even BLM may view what they process as kind of like we've been mentioning, it, it could be religious like because they want reparations or they're demanding repentance from certain groups. And so it seems as if racism is the ultimate type of sin or the ultimate type of wrongdoing that one can commit. So I would say because I think racism is a subset of sin, it's underneath this umbrella of sin. It's not to marginalize and say that, oh, I'm ignoring all this injustice. I don't care about that because I'm just going to preach Jesus. But I think the dialogue has to include true oppression is not one race having power over the other. You know, true oppression is sin stifling you from understanding who your savior is. And I think the definitions and the explanations, they're so important because if you don't introduce it that way, then your gospel becomes a social gospel, becomes narrated by different things that people process or think about. So I think just the way that I see it is you, you have to address things a certain way and clearly define why you wanted to see it that way and then proceed to kind of deconstruct or whatever else you want to do. Yeah, and so in terms of like a biblical definition of justice, I would say it's it's. <clears throat> so I think, and at least as as I understand a lot of CRT or at least what I've read so far, kind of popular level, is that it's they just take oppression as not only how just people feel like oh, I feel negative or oppressed, they take it as like okay, this certain group doesn't have power and they don't have the outcomes that you know i think they should have and that's automatically oppression and that's true for that's true for kindy by the way because kindy actually he um he just like defines a racist policy as anything any policy which has resulted in some way to racial inequities and without even really considering cause and effect by the way it's just it's resulted in racial inequities. Um, of course, not only is that wrong in many ways, because like, you know, for example, Indian Americans and a lot of Asian Americans, they do better on a median income level than anyone else. So it's kind of hard to say that's because of racism. Um, 
that's not a biblical definition because I think how the Bible kind of frames oppression is it of course oppression requires power but it's power that's used in an unjust way to take advantage of those who are less powerful and that's the key it's used in an unjust way and it's not just merely um, outcome based so for example the Bible doesn't give the idea that just because someone's poor he is he has been oppressed Instead, it gives the picture of oppression as, like if we look in the book of Amos, you see the rich taking advantage of the poor, you know, doing funky things with like weights, you know, taking their land, imposing heavy rent. Those are the things that are that's oppressive, but it's not merely because they're rich and merely because they're poor. It's because of how they use their power. And so that's what we have to keep into account. So that's, that's why whenever someone brings up like different outcomes that they don't like, my first question is always, how did that come about? Was it because someone unjustly used his power against a certain group of people and therefore led to these different results? And therefore we can say that's oppressive and that's racist or whatever, or did just, this is just how it turned out, you know? And sometimes that happens, right? Like, you know, if everyone was treated fairly and then just based upon people's different performance or even just different preferences, this is how it turned out. Well, I, I think people would then point to slavery and how white people did use their power unjustly to enslave black people. Oh, yeah. People. Well, no, no one, no one, no one is denying that. Right. So people are saying then because of slavery in like, what, 400 years or that's what people are saying for slavery and the the results of that are lasting to even today but people have found white people have found different ways to continue to enslave black people through like the prison system or through like laws that's why people say systematic racism how then would you yeah. respond to that so that's that's a, that's a good thing to bring up because so first of all i think a lot of the cause and effect going back 150 years to racism is very vague they just kind of point that out and it's like, okay, how, are, how tell me how like a, a black person now, particularly a lot of black people who grew up, grow up in kind of middle to upper middle class homes, how are they affected by racism 150 years ago? You know, are we like, and I, I'm going to be frank, like I talked to some Japanese Americans who one of them was even born in an internment camp back in California recently. And he's not claiming that his where he's at has anything to do with Japanese internment, which was a very real thing that happened to Japanese Americans, unfortunately. So there's a kind of a cause and effect there that they're missing a lot of steps, but I think it's more relevant to talk about something like the prison system. And I agree that there's still some problems. I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and defend the US prison system, but what I will say is that one of the problems I see in how CRT people argue this point is that they're not acknowledging that if you look at the data in terms of who's being, because they kind of construct this like um, narrative that black people for just simply having marijuana get thrown in prison for life and that's like a regular occurrence. No, the vast majority of people who are in prison is they're usually there because they're repeat offenders or because they're guilty of like violent crime. And if you kind of break down the data, you see that 
particularly black people, black men in, in, in particular, they are committing violent crime at a rate that is disproportionate to their percentage of the population. That's just, that's what's happening. Now, of course that invites the question, how did that, how, why is that happening? Why is that right. happening? Right. And in that case, but then if you dig into that with any sort of, I think, intellectual honesty, you see that's a complicated answer. Now, of course, it's not because black men are like inherently predisposed to violence. That's racist. It's a racist thing to say. But you can point to a lot of different issues. You can point to, you know, the lack of black fathers in the home. It's like an epidemic. Not only, And by the way, it's a problem in white families these days now, too. Um, you can point to different kind of cultural emphases, right? in terms of like what's going on. And so what's happening, I think, among a lot of CRT people is a reduction of agency, right? They're saying, it's almost like they're saying it's not their fault because they're oppressed. And that actually reminds me of a, of a conversation that a conservative commentator, Ben Shapiro had with the popular podcaster, Joe Rogan. And so Shapiro was basically just like, hey, they should just stop committing crimes, stop shooting each other, right? If you don't want to go to prison, don't shoot each other. And Rogan was trying to argue the point, well, hey, like, this is all they see in their like environment. So it's hard for them. Like, it's, it's easy for you to say they should stop. But you know, that's not an option for them. And for me, I was, I was listening to them. I was like, they're both wrong. And they're both right. Because it, so I think people, conservatives like Shapiro, they need to like take into account, yeah, there are socioeconomic factors. And I think, you know, later he did a better job of like trying to clarify his point. But like, yeah, it is hard, but you can't remove choice and agency or we just eliminate justice altogether. Mm -hmm. So like we can say like, hey, when a certain person like beats his wife, for example, and we learn in his background that he himself was abused and saw abuse when he was a child. We can say, feel bad for him. That was tough. I can see why he was now put on that path. Guess what? He still chose to beat his wife. He still should go to jail. You know, like, and you, you have to hold both of those. And I think mm -hmm. for critical race theorists, they don't. And so they just take everything as just like racist, 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 rather than kind of looking at it in a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not just a product of what we see we're not victims to our circumstances but there is a power in christ that uh, makes us new creation to be able to choose and be free to choose that like things that are not sinful but things that are good and pure and good and worthy yeah and i think and i think that's another, another crit critique i would have of crt it's like when it suits them at least there's like a reduction mm -hmm. of agency they just like, oh, like, it's almost like that. It's not that person's fault. Right. It's like, what? <laughs> and we right. talked about that even when we talked about Asian hate. And the, it was almost like, hey, don't blame like that minority who attacked that old Asian woman. It's white supremacy. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, um, did white supremacy <laughs> kick that old woman to the ground? Like, what happened here? Like, we're not going to treat this person as an agent, as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, as a moral agent who makes his choices, like it's ridiculous. Mm. So are there like any last evaluation points? I think we talked about a lot and we went through a lot, but if there is any more. Um, I would just say like, as we 
kind of winding this to a close. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you have any objections or questions, we'd love to hear them. We can address them later. Um, we know, you know, we, you can't cover everything in CRT in like an hour, but yeah. what I'd say to Christians in particular is like critical race theory is initially attractive and it does say some true things that we talked about. And as he talked about, it's actually pretty good at marketing. So who doesn't want to be anti-racist? If you take the term just literally anti-racist against racism, right? Who doesn't want to be against racism? Who doesn't want to believe that black lives matter? Like, like really, like I, I want, I want, I want us to really think about this. How many people have you walk around in the United States? Like we're talking like a very tiny, 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 tiny fraction or percentage of white, of literal white supremacists who would not agree with just the phrase black lives matter. Right? So, it's easy and it sounds initially attractive, but you have to dig into what they mean by those terms like anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And when you do, I think you see a host of ideological problems with critical race theory that go against biblical ideals of justice, of fairness, of identity and truth. And I think it becomes unsustainable to just kind of swallow CRT and then also try to, alongside of it, hold on to a biblical theology. And so we can learn some things from CRT, but reject a lot of these, by the way, core principles. We're not just rejecting, I think, just little details here and there about CRT. I think we're you know, rejecting some core principles in CRT that so to the point where we can say this ideology as a whole is problematic. Yeah. I think the whole reason CRT became so popular among Christians was because the church didn't really talk about race from a biblical standpoint. And that's why sure. CRT became so popular. And so I think the church should bring in the idea of reconciliation between races through the gospel. Because Ephesians talks about how the walls of hostility are broken down through the gospel. And we believe that the gospel does unite different races together, as Z mentioned earlier. And so the church should definitely have more discussions on race and what scripture says about it and, you know, how CRT is playing into the church as well. Because racial divisions are real and there are racists and there are problems like that. But we believe CRT makes this worse instead of making it better. It's not really bringing unity, but bringing more division. So we hope that through the gospel and through scripture that we can bring a better and more fuller understanding of how God unites people together and that there would be a better alternative to CRT instead of just um, kind of going with CRT since that's the only thing that there is. So with that, we thank you so much for listening in. I know this was a longer and maybe more robust uh, episode, but CRT is such a big theory that we thought it was really important to cover. And we really hope to include y'all into the discussion. So if you're shy to respond to the Instagram or our email, just uh, let us know individually. If you're our friends personally, you can just contact us as well. And we would love to involve y'all in the discussion since we do recognize that there are more nuanced maybe responses from the CRT side or even like the other extreme conservative side. So we thank you again. We hope to see you next week. Bye. Later.